We are called to be the conscience of our nation and to make a difference and to be outraged and upset and saddened at what goes on because we believe that only the gospel can change the heart of humanity. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning, our scripture reading comes from the Old Testament book of the Psalms, and we're turning to Psalm 139 and reading the first four verses and then jumping down verses 13 through 16. So Psalm 139, you'll find it on page 974 of the Pew Bible. Page 974, Psalm 139. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been involved in a series called Contagious Church, and today we come to Contagious Compassion. And so we begin Psalm 139 at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. And then down to verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. If you have been with us on a Sunday morning recently, you will know we've been working our way through a series of studies called The Contagious Church. And during that series, we've been asking ourselves a number of questions. And some of those questions relate to what does it mean to be a contagious church? How do you define a contagious church? And over the weeks, we've learned that a contagious church is a place of grace. Secondly, it's a place that is life-affirming, life-giving. We've also confirmed that at times a contagious church is a place where tough and sensitive issues are teased out, and we're going to do that this morning. As this morning we're coming to that controversial issue of abortion, and how do we as Christians who have a living faith intimacy with the living God, how does our faith impact the challenges we face in our day-to-day -day living? And today, we'll deal with some general principles, and we'll come down to some of the particulars and ask some of the tough questions as it relates to abortion, and how does our faith impact our understanding of abortion? Now, allow me please to ask you to use your imagination. And imagine yourself as a 31-year-old mum 
you have three children under five, five, three, and one. And in essence, that means at eight o'clock each evening, you are so tired, you cannot take another step. But you love being a mum and are just so blessed with your three children. Your best friend is Anne. You see each other at the weekends. You've been on long weekends together as uh, families. She has four children under eight, and they're eight, six, four, and one. And you saw Anne this morning. You both used the same daycare center. You had dropped off your wee ones, were rushing back uh, to work, and Anne passed you in the corridor. And when she passed you, there was something odd. Normally, she stops and chit-chats and uh, find out what's happening in the course of the day. You love each other dearly. You text several times uh, a day. But Anne just smiled and nodded and moved on this morning. And so you get back out to the car and you text her immediately and say, is there something wrong? And she comes back and says, I can't talk. I'll call tonight. And so when she phones that evening and you ask her how she's doing, she breaks down and cries. And it takes you a couple of minutes to get her stable again. And you say, Anne, what, what, what's wrong? What's happening? Tell me, how can I help? It turns out that last month, the middle of October, her husband was given six weeks' notice and told at the end of November his job would no longer exist. And then 10 days ago, they discovered as a couple she was expecting another child. Four under eight and the fifth one on the way. Then she breaks down and sobs again, and you can hardly get any sense out of her. And eventually she says, John and I have been thinking about abortion. What do you say? How do you advise Anne? How do you counsel them as a couple? What difference does your faith make in the very real challenges we face of living in the 21st century. Now, I know that abortion is, of course, a controversial subject. Often, when it comes up for discussion, the discussion is passionate, highly charged, emotional, sometimes bitter. Other times, it produces more heat than light. For many, it's a complex issue with no easy answer. It is a profoundly ethical issue, but allow me please to focus on one of the questions involved, because at its heart is life and death. Let me say that again. At the heart of the abortion debate is life and death. Now hold that picture in your mind, and we will go back there in a few minutes. This past Friday, Miss Ruth, my lovely bride, who is steady, holding steady at 35 years for her birthdays, and she had her birthday last Friday, and we had a wonderful day celebrating, and uh, we sat down to a lovely meal, and we had uh, ice cream cake. And I have to confess that I had no idea till I moved to the United States that you could get cake and ice cream in a single entity. What a wonderful country this is. It's just spectacular. 
And so we finished our dessert and enjoyed the fun of birthday celebrations. Then Ruth and Michael got on with uh, one or two things, and I sat down and turned on the television. As I watched the television, I turned on to the news channel, and like people all over the United States and Europe, we suddenly watched the news coming in from Paris, France. Terrorists had attacked multiple sites in Paris, as you know. Parisians were out enjoying the beginning of the weekend. Some were at an international soccer match. Some were in a pizza restaurant. Others were at a rock concert. And as the news began to unfold and the death toll began to mount, not only were we shocked and surprised, but I think most of us had the same experience. We were outraged, absolutely outraged at this act of terrorism, senseless violence that achieved nothing. And we felt that way on Saturday morning when we woke up. Governments and communities all over the world were condemning this act of barbarism. And here in the United States, we were outraged because we hold life to be not only significant, but sacred. Sacred. We believe in the principle of the sanctity of life. And we were outraged because of who we are. And in our founding documents as a nation, we have said this, we hold these things to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident, and that means they are beyond debate. It is obvious. It is a principle or cardinal principle of our democracy, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And life is at the beginning for obvious reasons, obvious reasons. And whether a young man stands up in a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night at Charleston and shoots nine people standing beside him, or whether we see beheadings by ISIS in the Middle East, or whether we watch the History Channel and we watch the unfolding of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, we are outraged, angry, utterly indignant over the loss of life. Now, having said we believe in the sanctity of life, how do we take that principle and apply it to the controversial issue of abortion? For some folks, it's a complex issue. They're confused over all that's going on, and to some extent that's true. Let me ask you the solemn, sober, inescapable question at the very heart, the epicenter of the abortion debate, and it's this. Is there life in the womb, or is it simply undifferentiated mass of tissue? Is it just a mass of tissue as there are masses of tissue in other places in the body, or is it life? Allow me, please, to highlight for you what science is sure of. And this is what scientists tell us. 
between 17 and 23 days, that mass of tissue has a discernible heartbeat. At 42 days, that same mass of tissue, you can detect electrical brain waves and activity. At eight weeks, cartilage and bones are beginning to be formed. At nine weeks, fingerprints are evident. Within 12 to 13 weeks, that undifferentiated mass or blob of tissue sucks its thumb and avoids pain. And let me read this, please, because I don't want to get this wrong. Her entire genetic code, which determines the characteristics of a person, i.e., her height, the shape of her face, the color of her hair, the color of her eyes, and so on, is established at the point of conception. Not 21 days, not 36 days, but at the point of conversion, from the beginning of the fetus, from the beginning of conception, that fetus is a human being and it is verifiable from every cell of its body. The DNA isn't added after the point of conception. It takes on no attributes of its mother or its father after that point. At the point of conception, its DNA is fully formed and it's seen in every cell. And most grandparents today see their grandchildren for the first time on a picture sent usually by the young mum on their phone because there, it is right there, they can see it formed after the examination is done. Science is in no doubt that life exists. We see it in an ultrasound. The genetic code is intact. The brain waves are evident and the heartbeat exists. What do we say about our faith impacting the challenges before us. When David wrote in Psalm 139, and look at it in verse 13, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. And what David is telling us is this, that back then the womb was a secret place that they could not see. Signs today can see it and determine it. And all of the evidence is crystal clear that this is not an undifferentiated blob of tissue, but a human life. In several weeks, about four or five weeks, we will move into the season of Advent. And inevitably, we will turn to Luke's infancy narrative, and we'll read the passage about Mary as a young mother going to meet her cousin Elizabeth. And when they meet and embrace and ask each other how they are doing, the child in the womb of Elizabeth leaps for joy. There is action and reaction, and that reaction is life, life in the womb. Jeremiah, Isaiah, the Psalms, others talk of it being exactly that. For some, it's a little more complex, and they tell us this. 
And this is the argument that comes from what is called the actuality principle, and it's this. The actuality principle define life in the following manner, and allow me to read it for you because, again, I don't want to make a mistake on this. The actuality principle argues that a person has the right to life only when they are capable of functioning in an intellectual, moral, social manner, self-conscious of their own surroundings, and capable of independent thought and reflection. Now, that was a lot, so let me give it to you again. A person has the right to life only when they are capable of functioning in an intellectual, moral, social manner, self-conscious of their surroundings, and capable of independent thought and reflection. Now, some of you know me well enough to know that just over 10 years ago, I had a very serious heart attack and died twice. And when they took me into intensive care unit, I was put on life support on the Friday night, and it was withdrawn on the Sunday morning. So on Friday and Saturday and part of Sunday, I could not form an intellectual communication with those around me. I was not aware of where I was. There was no independent life. And was my life therefore over? According to the actuality principle, yes, it was. If a baby was born this morning at Greenville Memorial and brought here now, wrapped up wonderfully, and I picked up that wee boy and held him in my arms, he would be the same, incapable of intellectual thought, unaware of surroundings, unable to reflect or converse. And according to the actuality principle, there is no life and was no life in either of us. Really? Really? Come on. When we talk about the abortion debate, it is a sensitive subject which we need to be very careful with. But some of the evidence is crystal clear. This morning in Memorial Hall, you will find the folks from Piedmont Women's Center manning a resource table there. They have brought some outstanding resources with them. And one of them is called, Before You Choose, Think Through the Issues. The other is Healing the Heart. For those who have experienced abortion and are living with the guilt and the shame and the heart and the pain, and emotionally and psychologically have found it very difficult to get over. For those of you who enjoy reading and want to go deeper in the subject, this past uh, couple of weeks I've been reading an excellent book called Abortion by R.C. Sprawl, and it's available in the church bookstore. I ordered a number of them last Monday, and you can pick that up. But all of these resources are there to say this, that when our grandchild or our daughter or our 31-year-old friend whose husband is facing employment comes to you and asks you for advice and counsel on how, you sh on how she should approach the birth of their fifth child, you can tell them this, that there are outstanding resources in the midst of crisis pregnancy, and there is care out there for them. Moral education exists. Protective legislation exists. Babies and mothers are given protective options these days, and there is always adoption as an option, 
Abortion shouldn't be the first thought. There are other possibilities. Some of you may be saying, Richard, what about the tough cases? Those who find themselves in a horrific situation of incest or rape or threat to the life of the mother. And you're right. Those are horrific situations. But only 3% of abortions in the United States fall into that category. Only 3%. And there is help there as well. This past week, I received the following email from a lady. It is quite a story, so please bear with me. And she writes, my first abortion was at age 18. I was young, naive, one of the good girls. He was handsome, a pastor's son, a few years older. He was my first love. He gave me a pre-engagement ring, and I gave him my virginity. My mother and the doctor arranged for the abortion to be in the hospital, and I was told it was just another blob of tissue. Afterwards, the abortion was never talked about by my family or by my boyfriend. It was as if it never happened. It caused their relationship to end. I was heartbroken. My innocence was shattered. Consequently, my life took an entirely different direction that it, than it would have had I done things God's way. My second abortion was at age 24. My boyfriend of three years insisted I have an abortion. I sobbed as he yelled at me on the way to the abortion clinic. He dropped me off, paid for it, and then went to work. I have never felt so alone or full of despair as that day. Actually, I don't remember a great deal about it. I only told one good friend what had happened, but I never told my mother. I was too ashamed. The relationship broke up shortly afterwards, and in 1981, at age 27, I was pregnant again. This time I knew without a doubt that I could not have another abortion. The father wanted to keep the baby, and so we chose life and marriage. We had two more beautiful children and were married for 11 years until he died very suddenly. During my years as a single mother, God was pursuing me, and finally I surrendered and gave my life to him. I finally accepted that he truly loved me and that I was forgiven for all my past sins, and God redeemed me and gave me a brand new life in Christ. Thirty-five years after my first abortion, I attended a forgiven and set-free Bible study course run by the Piedmont Women's Center. There I learned that God had removed my sins as far as the East is from the West, and I was truly healed and set free, set free from the guilt and the shame I had carried all those years. And now my life verse is this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The difference between my old life and my new life in Christ has been quite miraculous. It is a testimony of God's transforming, redeeming love and grace and mercy. Oh, and incidentally, the baby daughter I chose life for got married in 2001 and has blessed me with two precious grandchildren that I love with all my heart. I thank God for them every day. And she closes with these words, Thank you, Lord, for eternally changing my family 
tree. How does our faith impact the living challenges we face each day? Having looked at the particular, let me give you a closing illustration, and then we'll wrap things up. I want to step back from abortion just for a second and ask you to imagine, and I don't suppose you can see it from where you're sitting, but one of these BBs represents approximately 10,000 lives. 10,000 lives of American troops lost in combat. This past Wednesday, of course, we celebrated Veterans Day and should, and that's a special day for us. And during the American War of Revolution, around 8,000 soldiers lost their life. In the Civil War, 214,938. World War I, 53,402. Korea, 33,386. World War II, 291,550. In Vietnam, 47,424. Afghanistan, Iraq, 5,400. And they're still coming in. The same illustration. Imagine each BB is 10,000 lives, and the number of abortions in the United States alone since 1973. Fifty-six million. May God have mercy on us. If we are called to be a contagious church, we are called to be compassionate to those who are hurting and wounded and have gone through the awfulness of abortion. We are called to be the conscience of our nation and to make a difference and to be outraged and upset and saddened at what goes on, because we believe that only the gospel can change the heart of humanity. And the next time a 31-year-old does come to you and ask your advice, please let her know there are options out there, and it doesn't have to be the taking of a life. Let us pray together. Father, thank you from this passage of Scripture this morning that is so challenging and so powerful to us. Enable us, please, to be a compassionate church, a church which is life-giving and life-affirming, a church who seeks engagement with you, the living God, and a church which seeks to have an impact not only in our own lives, but in the lives of our families and our friends and our community and our state and our nation. 
Father, may we stand firmly for the truth of your word in order that renewal and refreshment and redemption may be a living reality across our world. Father, forgive us, cleanse us, strengthen us, and sustain us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have you missed a Sunday? Go to our website to watch previous broadcasts, download a podcast, or purchase a CD or DVD. And don't forget to connect with First Pres by liking us on Facebook and Twitter, signing up to receive emails, or requesting prayer online.